All right, so as we get uh, cooking here in this uh, kickoff to this teaching, did want to make a couple notes. Uh, one, our graphic was not super clear in uh, the pizza party with Pastor Pete. Uh, Kids Crossing is doing amazing stuff this month. It's all about food, and like today is let's taco about God, and they get to make tacos. So if you want to leave and go do Kids Crossing, I might join you, because that sounds pretty good. So they, all week they're doing cool things. They're painting pictures with waffles in a week or so. It's just way, way, way cool, way fun. Uh, but one of the things that was confusing on the slide is that it's age four through sixth grade. So if you've got a little one, they're certainly welcome to come. Uh, very cool stuff happening back there, and I really look forward to it. And Dar did mention that next week I'm bringing a special guest in, sort of, uh, via video. So when I was at OrtCon in July, uh, Open and Relational Theology Conference uh, at uh, Grand Tetons, one of our featured speakers, Tom Ord introduced as the world's foremost authority on divine wrath in the Bible. And you know what I'm talking about, right? People sometimes wonder, how do we make sense of God, particularly through a lens of Jesus, when you know, it looks like Jesus is saying that God's like this warm, loving daddy, when you have in the Old Testament and a little bit of pictures in the New Testament about God just, <laughs> you know, whipping out his belt and is just like, let me, let me show you a thing or two. I mean, it's a very different kind of God. So I'm bringing you via video this lecture that I heard. It's 30 minutes. Uh, it will be engaging. There's a handout. You can take notes. And it will, it will stretch you, perhaps. Now, it's a, it's a welcome video at Crosswalk because of who we are and who we've become. But it'll probably still mess with you a little bit. And so I wanted to mess with you. And then come back that Wednesday night and have some cookies. And let's talk about it and uh, see how we're, how we're processing it. Because there will be a lot to think about on Sunday morning. And I just hope that you'll do that. Okay. As we get into this uh, teaching, let us take a deep breath together. And will you join me in a brief prayer? Still our hearts, God. It's already been a good service. We have proclaimed with our voices that we want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We have been reminded in song that we are all welcome to the table, that you love us. You really do. And for some of us, that's all we need to hear today. But we've also been reminded that there is this wonderful, uh, inspirational invitation to follow you. And so we're reminded that you're letting us in on the game. The most important one in all of history. Where we get to bring more of your beauty, your love, your grace into the world. Today, God, I pray that your spirit will remind us in deeply personal ways that we really are loved by you, just as we are. And we're also so loved by you that I believe your spirit might nudge us today in some way. That there might be something that I mean to say today and something I didn't even know I was going to say today or maybe nothing that I'm saying today, but your spirit is going to work with this moment together. You might be nudging us to think differently, to see differently, to be differently. And I pray that we'll just be open to the whole thing. Open to your love for us, open to your love leading us. May the words of our mouths 
and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And I've got some cracker in my throat, so I need to grab my water again. All right. So I want to do this series, and today um, we're going to launch into this thing with this whole idea of hypocrites, because probably the number one thing I hear uh, from people who criticize the faith uh, is all the hypocrites. And they've got lots and lots of ways to talk about it. Uh, the popular ones are uh, people party it up all night, Friday and Saturday night, go to church on Sunday to get their sins forgiven so they can go right back out Monday through Saturday and sin all over again to repeat the cycle, knowing that it's going to get re-upped every time. <laughs> Hit the reset button. And certainly we know about that. We know people who, you know, talk really loud and proud about their Christian faith, and yet they sure seem to have a hard time actually living it out in a multitude of ways. And usually when we're in that position, uh, we're kind of in a place of judgment because maybe we've mastered an area that somebody else is really struggling to figure out. And so we feel a little bit better, better about ourselves because we're getting it and we can see clearly that they're not, even though they're calling themselves Christian, I'm just not sure about that. Hypocrites. It's a real thing. Uh, but you know, um, Brian McLaren, he actually asks a little bit deeper question about that whole hypocrisy thing. And the thing he asks, he said, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't stop there just on the hypocrisy. Maybe we should ask a deeper question. Maybe the problem isn't just hypocrisy. Maybe, maybe Christian faith itself really can't deliver the goods. Maybe it ha does not have the capacity to truly transform lives. And that's why we see so much hypocrisy. Why would we devote any of our time and our resources and our hopes and our dreams in a faith that cannot deliver? Well, now that's a serious question. So that's kind of where we're gonna, where we're gonna go today. So the man's name was Thomas Auld, A-U-L-D. He was a slave owner uh, in the Deep South, and one of his slaves was none other than Frederick Douglass, who would become, you know, a leading voice in anti-slavery globally, respected globally uh, for his intellect and his capacity uh, to speak. When he was uh, a slave as a younger person, he remembers and recounts the story when Thomas Auld went to a camp revival meeting put on by the Methodist denomination. And while he was at this revival, he came to faith. He accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and Frederick Douglass heard this and was like, wonderful. Perhaps the faith that he has acquired and embraced will make him more humane and kind, because that seems like what Jesus would call him to do. But Frederick Douglass, unfortunately, had something else to say. On the next screen it says, well, if his conversion had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. Ald was ostentatious about his piety, praying morning, noon, and night, participating in revivals and opening his home to traveling preachers, but he used his faith as license to inflict pain and suffering upon his slaves. He goes on, I have seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drip. 
and in justification of the bloody deed, he would quote this passage of scripture. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Well, this should not surprise us because we've known about this part of our history uh, for a very long time. Unfortunately, it didn't end when slavery ended. We know that once slavery ended, Reconstruction began in the South. And it only began in the South because the Union Army was in the South to make sure that Reconstruction was happening. During the five minutes that Reconstruction held, uh, some equality started to take shape. You were seeing African Americans, now free, rise in governmental leadership. It was quite something. But then in a deal to keep the nation from crumbling apart, regarding a presidential election. I can't believe that we would have such a thing happen. <laughs> Contentious presidential elections in the United States, what? Uh, but to, to preserve peace, they brokered a deal that said the Union Army would pull out of the South and hopefully Reconstruction would continue. But as you can probably guess, as soon as the Union Army pulled out of the South, Reconstruction stopped. Now the reason that is interesting and challenging for us is because Reconstruction, creating equality after a war was fought and won, seems like a very good thing to do, seems like a Christian thing to do. And you would think in a part of our country that was celebrated for its deep Christian beliefs and rootedness, that certainly the people of faith would be on board with it but they were not. Might remind you uh, that before Civil War there were Baptists in these United States. Maybe some very small splinter groups here and there from different parts of Europe but mostly it was just Baptist capital B. And then there was a massive debate among Baptists about whether or not missionaries could own slaves. And a decision came down that missionaries could not own slaves and Baptists split in two. Southern Baptists who believes missionaries could own slaves and Northern Baptists that believed they could not. Northern Baptists over time became American Baptists and were a little bit more on the civil, uh, civility side, social justice side and that became American Baptists which we are as Crosswalk a part of. So remember that of course Reconstruction had a hard time moving forward when the dominant faith tradition in that region was saying slavery never should have ended. It's our God-given right. Of course it didn't end there. Uh, time went on and we found that uh, there were progressive movements in the United States history but progressive didn't mean the same as it does now. Uh, we have a little tagline for Crosswalk. Uh, we, are, we are a progressive alternative. Uh, but if we were in the 1900s, early 1900s, and we use that word, it wouldn't mean the same thing. Now there may have been some interest in some social justice and making sure that people were treated better and more fairly, but for the progressives at that time, they were really only interested in laws that would help white people <laughs> experience more uh, equity. Uh, in terms of people of color, eh, not so much. Our country's been conflicted, this Christian nation of ours, about whether or not uh, we should be uh, truly Christian or less than that. Some rights uh, started to get enacted. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, was the one that signed into law uh, some labor protections, primarily for women and children. 
which was shocking that it took so long. Uh, but at that time in history, and again, I'm just going to throw out my own vision of this thing. Um, even though we say in God we trust and we're a Christian nation, you know, our nation was really founded on an idea of a different way of doing government and a different way of freeing up business called capitalism. And capitalism and free trade is, is really the heartbeat of who we are. I still think that is the case. And part of that capitalism uh, is, were two competing ideas of how we should govern our country. This is back in the early 1900s up to around 1930 and a little bit beyond. And part of the idea, one camp was saying that we really think we should follow what would be called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism just simply says we believe in natural selection and so let the market speak. And if a particular business or industry is doing it wrong, eventually the market will catch up and scold that thing and it'll correct it and we'll all go forward. We, we may not be able to trust God, but we can trust the market. <laughs> That's sort of the idea. Unfortunately, that system of social Darwinism usually means that somebody has to die unnecessarily. It's usually very, very slow in response because it takes forever. So women got... Uh, some, uh, some write-up in the law to protect them, but the only way they got protection under the law was to make the case to the nation that they were inferior creatures to men. They couldn't handle a 12-hour day because they're the weaker sex. It was that argument that helped propel the case forward for women's rights. And children, for similar reason, but eventually, I mean, it's shocking that it took as long as it did for children. How is that possible? How is it possible that in a nation that is sort of founded on, you know, Christian principles, that we would be so slow to deal with slavery and its Jim Crow uh, after that, and still civil uh, rights and all of that stuff, it's still with us today, and we don't even want to talk about it now as a country. How is it possible that this is where we are? Uh, Brian McLaren, in his book, he uh, poses a thoughtful experiment. He says, well, what would happen if, you know, in trying to understand Christianity uh, and its impact in the world, what would happen if an alien visited and asked the question, what is the greatest, the strongest, the biggest religion in the world? And that answer would be Christianity. And then ask a little more, uh, what nation in this nation, what, what nation in this world is the Christianist nation, at least by what they say. Well, that would be America. And so, within America, how would we know if Christianity was really effective at helping people become better people and the world a better place? Well, maybe the way to go is to look at the five most religious states and ask the question, where Christianity is practiced the fullest, should we naturally expect that life in many ways, along a range of criteria, would simply be better. Because it would stand to reason that if Christianity is deeply valued and practiced in a particular space, if Christianity is legit, that should bear out in the numbers. And so we get this little graph, which is on the next slide. It's going to be difficult for you to read, so let me just pour through this for you. So these are the top five most religious states in the United States. Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana and Arkansas. Alabama ranks 48th in longevity, 47th in education, 42nd in happiness, uh, 40th in, what is that word, uh, median household income, and it ranks 11th in teen pregnancies. 
Mississippi ranks 50th in longevity. I'm just going to read it up here. My old eyes are getting at me. Uh, Mississippi ranks 50th in longevity, 43rd in education, 43rd in happiness, 50th in median household income, and it ranks second in teen pregnancies. Tennessee ranks 43rd in longevity, 33rd in education, 44th in happiness, and 42nd in median household income, and 9th in teen pregnancies. Louisiana ranks 45th in longevity, 48th in education, 46th in happiness, and 47th in household income. It ranks 6th in teen pregnancies. In Arkansas, the most religious state in the United States is tied with Louisiana at 45th in longevity and ranks 41st in education, 49th in happiness, and 49th in median household income, and it ranks first in teen pregnancies. Now, McLaren, immediately after sharing these statistics, makes it clear that these are complex subjects, and we can't be so quick. But he also makes the case. If Christianity were that effective at making the world a better place, why are these numbers so terrible? And for those who are skeptics and wondering, why should I stick around for this nonsense? <laughs> McLaren kind of goes along with them and says, I kind of don't blame you. It seems like a failed experiment. Have any of you ever been frustrated by these things? Ever been frustrated by hypocrisy in religion? Anybody out there? A few of you? Right. Well, I have some good news for you. And the good news for you is that you are not alone. In fact, the one that you claim to follow and are hoping to learn more about his ways, Jesus, was right there with you. Jesus was furious when he saw hypocrisy. There's a whole chapter in the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, that is dedicated to Jesus' rant where he may have crossed the line in his fury toward the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who were uh, situated in an office in Jerusalem. They were greedy. Uh, they were welcoming and forcing the poor uh, to give them money so they could live very large. They didn't practice what they preached. They were the pictures of hypocrisy. But they held the power. So there was nothing you could really do about it. But Jesus was furious about them. And let them know in no uncertain terms. There are 38 verses in that chapter uh, of, of, uh, in Matthew. And in those 38 verses, six times, like six different headings, Jesus calls them hypocrites. The leaders of the religion. I remind you that Jesus did not get killed because he was, uh, because he was of no impact that uh, he was just a nice guy. He got killed by powerful people because that person, Jesus, was calling out the powerful people for what they were doing wrong. Calling them out. Uh, he got political. He got his hands dirty. He saw people that were being abused by those people in power, and he raised those people to equal status, and it made them mad but nobody else was doing it. That's Jesus. You're in good company. Uh, you know, Jesus isn't the only one uh, who, um, who saw this way and understood it. In fact, Jesus influenced somebody quite profoundly, so much so that this guy is one of these household names that's right up there with Jesus. His name's Gandhi. Gandhi was deeply impacted by Jesus. He learned his nonviolent response from Jesus. And he saved his country uh, because of Jesus. But he's got some interesting quotes 
about Christianity. On the next slide, Gandhi's quoted as saying, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but your Christians, you are not like him. Live like Jesus did, and the world will listen. Man, that's penetrating. And what do we do with this? Jesus calls it out, which is instructive, so we don't just bury our head in the sand and pretend there aren't any problems. Actually, Jesus did exactly the opposite. His parables, his teaching was always shining a spotlight on the problems we wish we could just walk away from. Because Jesus had this crazy idea that if you actually talk about your problems, you might be able to solve them. And one of uh, the New Testament letters that talks about wherever there is evil, bring it out into the light and it will get seen for what it is. Jesus was doing that all the time and it made people mad and it got him killed. So Jesus, in trying to be preemptive perhaps about making sure that the hypocrisy may have, could be minimized, uh, he said a really dumb handful of things when he himself was a megachurch pastor. Uh, he was a megachurch pastor for about five minutes a few times uh, where he'd have thousands of people around him and it looked like things were going strong. People were going to be talking about him. He might get his own private jet someday. Uh, but he would say stupid things. And this is one of those situations that, that he said something which he should have talked to his PR guy because he, mi he missed it. So in this next slide, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat, defeat the 20,000 soldiers marking, marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. If this is the criteria, how many of us are disciples of Jesus? Hate your father. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a well-known scholar and preacher, uh, she says, you know, if you've been, a, been trying to follow Jesus for a while and you read this passage, you know better than to call yourself a disciple. Because there's only a few of those throughout history. Maybe at best, we can call ourselves friends of disciples. <laughs> because this bar seems so high. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's using exaggerated language to make a point. And the point that he's making, uh, they're really good. Is he really saying you need to hate your family need to hate your own life if you're really going to be my disciple? No. 
But I think he is saying that if you're going to be my disciple, you might want to examine how you've been shaped and formed by your family of origin and by who shaped you. Because it's going to come down to a decision point. Am I choosing to believe everything that I was told as a kid, even if it's wrong? Or am I going to choose this new idea called the good news that Jesus talked about, this divine commonwealth? Which one am I going to choose at that point? And the reality is, this isn't just a one fork in the road kind of a thing, like you're going to remember on that day in September on the 4th, 2022, when you finally did it. No, this is going to happen hundreds and hundreds of times throughout our lives, where we come to grips with maybe a new idea that 10 years ago we couldn't have even entertained before because it takes time to process stuff and learn and grow and sometimes it literally takes our brains time for the synapses to make its way together so that we can even entertain new ideas and so literally it takes a lifetime of learning and it comes down to that same question again and again and again do we want are we willing to look at the values and the beliefs that we have held up to this point and are we willing to contrast them to what we're seeing in Jesus and when we find out that the way of Jesus is different at that point, will we choose to follow Jesus? That's the question. When I hear this hyperbolic thing that Jesus threw out there, um, it raised lots of questions for me. So I just, have, I just threw up a bunch of questions here on the next couple screens. You could probably add to it. Do I even know what Jesus did with his life to address the greatest needs he saw? Am I doing much of anything to address the greatest needs around me? Even to care enough to find out and pray? Do we even care enough <laughs> to discover on our own what are the complexities of the issues that are challenging for us? And if we have enough care to do that and find out, do we at least have enough in us to say, I'll pray for that? Oh, go back. I haven't gotten there yet, Trudy. Go back one if you can. I had some great questions in there. Thank you. Uh, how did Jesus stand up for those who were being mistreated? How am I doing that? How did Jesus discover the heartbeat of Abba that guided his steps? How do I do that? Have I stopped learning about what the footsteps of Jesus actually are? Did I decide that because I became a Christian, in my case in fourth grade, and got baptized when it was my decision, do I decide that I pretty much got it figured out then? Or was it in high school when I kind of rededicated my life to Christ? Was that the moment where I really got it? Or was it in college after I screwed my life up pretty well and came back around and was uh, on fire for that? Was, was that the time where I say, I can stop learning? Or was it deep into my ministry here when I hit the wall and was burning out after year four or five and wanted to go sell ice cream somewhere and decided I wonder if there's more to learn about this faith even though I already had a master's of divinity degree which is three-year master program I decided I don't know enough to leave when do we decide to stop learning because I'm hearing this Jesus and I'm looking at the disciples reflected in the Gospels. <laughs> and they're always scratching their heads. Wait, what? <laughs> Where are we going? What does that parable even mean? 
don't give us a parable just tell us what you want us to do this is the way it is on the next slide how did Jesus show love and grace to people who didn't get much love and grace who are these people in our time and place how do I show them love and grace how did Jesus speak truth to power how do I how did Jesus offer his life and service to others how do I how did Jesus place himself in community how do I and I'm sure you have your own set of questions that you could add to this this isn't a this isn't a sermon to berate us and to make us feel guilty and bad about being human beings actually just the opposite I want to say again we are deeply and profoundly loved by God but God also understands that we are deeply human and so is everybody else the fact is that the more we see the hypocrisy and other people and point our fingers at them at some point we're gonna realize that every person we're pointing at we got three fingers pointing back at ourselves that we're the hypocrites At the end of the day somewhere in our life we're the hypocrites so what do we do at that point do we go into denial or do we say in our own confession before God and each other I blew that one I didn't see it I couldn't see it for whatever reason I was listening to the formation of my life and how I was shaped and where I was shaped and I that just made so much sense to me but now I'm hearing this stuff and okay enough I can see this now and I'm gonna go forward I think Jesus is cool with that I think that's actually reflected in the New Testament in the book of Acts trying to figure it out sometimes almost in fisticuffs with each other because the issues before them are so powerful and huge what does it mean to be a Jesus people who's in who's out how do we go forward these are incredibly challenging questions that they wrestled with and for the early part of the movement of Jesus following they did a really good job of following Jesus in this new community of looking at each other and gracefully saying and sometimes very powerfully saying this is messed up and this needs to change because we are the body of Christ we can do this differently we are not gonna take our our, our guide by the world and the culture around us we are counter cultural counter intuitive we are following Abba our daddy into this new way of thinking bringing divine commonwealth more and more there was a man named uh, Walter Rauschenbusch who lived uh, mostly in the 19th century so in the 1800s and he died in the teens of the 1900s he had a powerful experience uh, that uh, I don't know if it was his conversion experience so uh, so to speak but it was a powerful spiritual experience where he experienced the holiness of God so much that it radically changed his life um, I've had one of those and it's like you actually experience the presence of God and you're like Woo, you know it's it's that kind of a thing and you you can't forget it and he had one of these things happen and so he was convinced about the power and the presence of God right here right now and he was in ministry and also recognized that his call to follow Jesus wasn't just for his own inner peace but it was to do something to bring about more of what Jesus was about into the world and so he started to look in his surroundings and he was a pastor in New York near Hell's Kitchen which was a pocket where a lot of immigrants lived in New York City 
And in this particular pocket, it was mostly Italian immigrants. Now remember that back in the early 1900s, uh, if you were Italian in America, you were not treated equally. There was an actual food chain uh, that was heavily influenced by our government and paid for by government dollars. Studies in eugenics were done right here at Stanford University, one of the leading academic research places, about how do we weed out people who probably shouldn't be in our country, right? Uh, the, the golden people were northern Europeaner, Euro, Europeaners, and that's not right, that's not coming out. Northern Europeans, that's right. <laughs> they may have been peoners too, I'm not sure. <laughs> northern European folks who look like me. I'm Dutch, blue eyes, white skin. I'm, I'm Dutch. My wife, Swede, even better, blonde hair and blue eyes, right? Can't get more pure than that. That was the idea back then, that that is the, that is the pinnacle race. And the further south you went and the darker your skin tone got, you were just a little less equal. A lot of these Italian immigrants lived in and around Hell's Kitchen. And because there were no labor laws, children worked, and so did their mothers. A large percentage of women worked to the bone. Working conditions were horrible and dangerous for women and children. And this is on the heels of what's called the Gilded Age. After the Civil War, when industry really took uh, rise, when the wealthiest of the wealthy in the United States could enjoy their wealth and all of their splendor without giving a rip about the people who helped them get there because they didn't have to, because social Darwinism ruled the day, and eventually, if the market wanted to spank them, it would, but not yet. So Walter Rauschenbusch and his colleagues, reading Jesus, were looking at the situation right there in front of their face, where people were dying because other people weren't caring and they began to rally together. And they created what eventually was called the social gospel. Now, Rausch and Bush would never have used this term. He would have just called it the gospel, about making the world around us a better place, that that's what it means to be Jesus followers, which means you look at, for those people who the world is not an equal, wonderful place, you start asking questions, well, why? How do we get there? And you start to do something about it. That's what he did and what they started to do. Their progress was going really, really well until World War I hit. And as soon as World War I hit, uh, socialism became a really dirty word. And they assumed that all socialism was going to look like it did. And so things pulled back significantly, religiously and uh, politically. And it's like a movement died for a while. And it took until the 1950s and 60s before this idea of the gospel being a social thing to make the world a better place would come back to life. Well, Rauschenbusch, um, he wrote a series of amazing uh, prayers and thoughts in a journal that landed in a book that I read frequently. And so he was musing to himself about, well, what does this life of Jesus really look like? The blessed life, he calls it. And on the next slide, this is how he framed it in this particular entry. He said, the main thing is to have God, to live in God, to have God live in us, to think God's thoughts, to love what God loves and hate what God hates, to realize God's presence, 
To feel God's holiness and to be holy because God is holy. To feel God's goodness in every blessing of your life and even in his tribulations. Uh, he was deaf by this point, by the way. To be happy and trustful. To join in the great purposes of God and to be lifted to greatness of vision and faith and hope with God. That is the blessed life. It is a life that looks and sounds like this. A life where we're willing to be broken. It is a life that because of our dedication to the love that has transformed us, we recognize that maybe it might cost us something too. Last week I gave you a modified Lord's Prayer. On the next slide. This is what it is. Remember it? Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere. The divine commonwealth come. And they will be done through us. Because God doesn't have hands and feet. We are God's hands and feet. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound. Modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. I'd like us to spend just a moment in quiet and let the Spirit speak to us maybe. Give time for us to be still. And then we'll come back and we'll say this out loud again together if you'll entertain that idea. So let's just pray together. I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply. A lot's been thrown at you today. Are there one or two things that seem to really be sticking? Why are those things sticking? Is it possible God might be in the mix? God may have been nudging some of those things to pop out. Nudging you and you're wondering why. And I'm wondering, is there an additional nudge of God that might be nudging you toward next steps to do in response to what has stuck out to you today? Sometimes when we consider heavy things in the ways that maybe we haven't hit the mark, it can really leave us feeling heavy, maybe even shamed or guilty. I don't want that. I don't think you do either. So if that's going on in us, God, I pray that you, you help replace that in us. Our whole country is so performance-based. We go through there so easily. So help us, God. Do something do something within us to help us see that you get us, you know we're human, and you love us. And you invite us, you invite us to be part 
of the beauty you want to see happen in the world. Not as a punitive thing like you better or else, but hey, I'm asking you to come alongside. And you're not alone. I'm going to breathe breath into your lungs. I'm going to give you strength you didn't know you had. Insight to, to understand things. Words in your mouth when you really need them. I'm with you on this because this is who I am, who I want to be in the world. I, people need to know this. And I think you got something. You're amazing. I created you. I know everything about you. Can you use your skills and talent to do this wonderful, blessed thing? You can. I made you for this. I'm with you for this. Let's see what beautiful thing we can do together. And now if you'll join me in saying this prayer out loud together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. Thank you so much for coming today. Hope you had a good experience, and we will see you next week. All right.